Please follow along as I read today's scripture reading found on Genesis 18. I'll be reading chapter 23, sorry, verse 23 to 25. That's Genesis 18, verse 23 to 25. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not, will not the judge of all the earth do right? This is the word of God to us. Let's pray and then we will dive back into the story of Abraham. Gracious, merciful, loving, friendly, faithful, lovely, beautiful Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, um, knowing that we need our, our minds renewed by your revelation, by your word. We have so many ideas about you that don't necessarily come from the revelation that you have given. So I pray, Lord God, in this hour that you would show us by your spirit coming and teaching us, that you would show us, Lord, more of your character, uh, that we would then take that and let it saturate our minds and hearts and souls and live out of it as your people. Uh, Lord, renew our minds in this hour, we pray, and be with us in a very strong and a very tangible way as we enter into Genesis 18 now. In in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. On my way of reckoning, there are two basic questions that are addressed in this morning's preaching text, two basic questions. The first question which is addressed mostly in the first 15 verses of Genesis 18, is the question, what sort of friend is God? And then the second question, which is addressed in the latter verses, the last half of the chapter, is the question, what sort of judge is God? So those are the basic two questions that we will be asking of the text as we walk through it now. What sort of friend is God? And secondly, what sort of judge is God? Now, in the first half of Genesis 18, and I hope you have your Bible open, Abraham experiences this strange visitation. Now, I say strange visitation because the text is purposely mysterious about this visit. On the one hand, we have verses like verse 1 and verse 13 and other verses in the text which tell us specifically that the Lord was the one who was visiting Abraham. But on the other hand, we have a verse like verse 2, where we're told that three men were visiting Abraham. Or we have verse 1 of chapter 19, where we're told that two of the three visitors were angels. I think the best we can do here is to conclude that God shows up to Abraham in physical human form here 
and God comes with two angels flanking him, who are also in human form. I don't think it would be wise for us to assume that the three men who visit Abraham were some sort of representation of the Trinity, because that would be reading a much later church historical doctrine back onto a text and back onto a time when Trinitarian theology was still centuries from being hammered out. I think the most we can say about Abraham's visitors is that this was a theophany. A theophany is a visible manifestation of the divine presence. God appears here in human form to Abraham, flanked by two angels who are also in human form. And all of this means, friends, that we are dealing now with a very important moment in the story. When God appears in human form to human beings, we can gather that something very crucial is happening. So let's go to the text. Verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So just at the time of the day when Abraham might have wanted a little siesta, the heat of the day, God appears to him at the door of his tent. God essentially comes knocking on Abraham's door here. Abraham is sitting there reading the Canaan Gazette in his armchair. And verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... Three men were standing in front of him. Notice that we've gone from the Lord appeared to Abraham in verse 1 to three men were now standing in front of Abraham. Mysterious, is it not? The last part of verse 2 says, When Abraham saw the three men, he did what? He ran. Abraham is 99 years old. He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now here there is some debate, but I'll give you my um, assessment of this. When Abraham says, O Lord, as he greets at least one of the three men, I think that Abraham here is simply using a customary ancient Near Eastern greeting that you would give to an honorable person. In other words, I don't think that Abraham is using the phrase, O Lord, in this place, in terms of, O God, as if Abraham already recognized that this was God standing in front of him. I don't think that Abraham yet realizes who it is that has come knocking on his door. At this point, I think Abraham could certainly recognize that these visiting men were worthy of honorable treatment, but I don't think that yet in the text he knows he's dealing with God. Verse 4. Now watch here. We can learn from this. Watch how Abraham's amazing gift of hospitality now kicks in. He says to the visitors, Let a little water be brought. And wash your feet, 
and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Now, friends, note that last sentence there very carefully. Do as you have said. That is, yes, Abraham, go get water, go get food for us as you have suggested. Now, you and I, as readers of the story, have been told already in verse 1 that this is a a visitation of the Lord, right, of God himself. You and I are in the know as readers about who it is that's visiting Abraham here. And now God says to Abraham, yeah, Abraham, a little food, a little water in in your dusty tent would be wonderful. Go ahead and fetch it. Now, remember our first question at the outset of the sermon, what sort of friend is God? Well, here in verse 5, we have the first part of an answer, and I hope you'll hear it well. God is the sort of friend who stops by for a meal with his people, who likes to spend time and fellowship with his people. And God will be stopping by a little later at the table to be with us as we eat bread and as we drink the cup. Well, watch Abraham in verses 6 through 8 now. I think Gordon Ramsay would be in awe of Abraham here. And Abraham went quickly into the tent. Abraham is 99 years old. He went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick! (laughs) Three seahs of flour. Now, according to my calculations... Three seahs of flour would be about nine and a half kilograms or 20 pounds of flour. That's two of the five kilogram bags of Robin Hood flour. Abraham says to Sarah here, knead it, all of it, and make cakes. That's a lot of cakes, Abraham. 20 pounds of flour. And friends, I think what we see here in this measurement that's given in the text is just the sheer extravagance of the meal that Abraham wants to prepare for his guests. He's going all out here. Verse 7. And Abraham ran. He's 99 years old. He ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man, his sous chef, who prepared it quickly. (sighs) All this running around, this quickness, it sort of leaves you breathless in the text here. Verse 8, then he took curds and made putin. (laughs) And he took milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before his three visitors, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now notice that. While they ate. Who is it that's eating physical food at Abraham's house? It's God. It's the one who made the calf that's on the plate. It's the one who created the plants that gave the flower that's on the plate. The Lord of heaven and earth is at Abraham's house 
eating barbecued calf and hanging with Abraham and Sarah. Friends, our God, the God that we've come to worship this morning, cannot be charged with being a distant God who stands aloof from his creatures. Here he is drawing near to his people, getting intimate with his people, which is what he loves to do, enjoying fellowship with his people. That's the sort of friend that God is. Verse 9. God wipes his mouth with a napkin and says to Abraham, Where's Sarah, your wife? Now, if Abraham still hadn't clued into the fact that God and two angels were sitting here eating at his table, I think the question in verse 9 would be a little unsettling. Because now these mysterious men ask the whereabouts of Abraham's wife, and they use her name, Sarah. How did these strangers know her name? Abraham answers, she's in the tent. And God, who asked the question of Sarah's whereabouts, already knew Sarah's whereabouts. Amen? God knew all along that Sarah was in the tent because he's God. I think the only reason God asks, where is Sarah your wife, was to get Sarah's ears to perk up behind the tent flap where she is because God is about to say something important and he wants Sarah to listen in. So now God has Sarah's attention. Now here, I imagine, allow me a little license here with the story. I imagine God doing a kind of a final wipe of his mouth with his napkin, pushing himself back from the table a little bit, folding his arms, and then saying, verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And now if Abraham had any doubts as to who these three men were, the cat's out of the bag now. This is God at the table. God is simply repeating the promises that he made to Abraham in chapter 17. The purpose of God appearing in this theophany, the purpose of God coming in this unusual way to eat physically at Abraham's table, the reason for God taking on a human body in this instance was to personally come and re-express to Abraham and Sarah the promise on which hung the entire future of God's world. That's why he's done this. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Verse 11. This is a great verse. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. They just were. (laughs) Advanced in years, as if old wasn't enough. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, Sarah had reached menopause. So Sarah laughed to herself. Notice that very carefully, friends. She laughed to herself. 
she thinks that she's having this little private moment of laughter with no one able to hear her. She laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? You know, you get to an age where physical relations with your spouse are just not as enjoyable anymore. For Sarah, who is menopausal and not even enjoying relations with Abraham anymore, having a baby son is a non-starter. It it was laughable. And so she laughs to herself at the prospect, just as Abraham had laughed at the same prospect back in chapter 17. But I really want us to notice the connection here. The connection we need to note is this. God speaks his word of promise in verse 10. And Sarah laughs to herself at the word of promise in verse 12. Sarah laughs, we might say, at the word of God. And again, she laughs at it privately. Or so she thinks. Now my question is, do I ever do that? Do you ever do that? Hearing the word of God and snickering at it behind closed doors. Can we sometimes be like Sarah? Let's be real here, okay? Sometimes the promises that God makes seem pretty outlandish, don't they? Here the outlandish promise is giving a baby son biologically to an elderly menopausal woman. But in other parts of the Bible, we believers have promises like not seeing death when we die. Or never dying if we believe in Jesus. In our private moments, sometimes we wonder about this from the human side of the coin. How can something so outlandish actually be true? We laugh. Well, watch verse 13. (laughs) The Lord said to Abraham, maybe one more wipe with the napkin. Why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? So God heard the private laughter of Sarah. Verse 14, God asks a rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall Have a son. Is anything, friends, too hard for the Lord? Is physically resurrecting people to eternal life too hard for the Lord? Even a believer, say in World War II, who was blown to bits on the battlefield and his physical person is spread all over the place. Is anything too hard for the Lord to resurrect a person like that, a believer? It's not too hard, though some may privately snicker at the prospect of resurrection behind closed doors. 
is growing a baby in the womb of the Virgin Mary too hard for the Lord? No, though some laugh at something so outlandish behind closed doors. We could translate God's question in verse 13, is anything too wondrous for the Lord? Is anything beyond the capability of the Lord our God? God is saying to Abraham and Sarah, you will get pregnant in your old age and you will bear a son and I shall surely do this because nothing is too hard for me. Now, I think God's question, verse 14, for us is a good one to play on loop over and over and over again in our minds and hearts. Just get it playing on loop. When we are agonizing over something in life, is anything too hard for the Lord? When we have reached a wall, when we've reached a roadblock, a situation that we have concluded is simply impossible, is anything too hard for the Lord? Play that question over and over again, in your mind and heart, and answer it with a resounding no. Over and over and over again. No, there isn't anything that is too hard for the Lord. Are you with me? Well, in verse 15, Sarah gets a little scared. She had laughed secretly, so she thought, but God busted her. And said he heard her laugh. But now in what the text calls fear, Sarah denies it. And she says, I never laughed. But God, notice, keeps up the expose. And he says at the end of verse 15, nah, but you did laugh. (laughs) Isn't this great? It's right there in the text. It's like God takes out a little notebook. And turns to the page where the headline, Laughter, is written up top in bold. Underneath that headline, he writes a check mark beside Abraham's name in the Abraham column. Then he goes to the Sarah column, and he writes another check mark there as well. Both Abraham and Sarah have now laughed at the prospect of having a son. God looks at his notebook on that page, and God smiles. The son's name will be Isaac, which means he laughs, or just laughter. God will get the last laugh here, as we said last week, God's, or two weeks ago. God's laughter in giving this baby boy is simply going to drown out the laughter of Sarah and Abraham. His laughter will be overpowering. Well, before we proceed to verses 16 through 33, which is really the second unit in this chapter, let's just do a quick quick review here of the first unit. We've just come through, verses 1 through 15. We said that verses 1 through 15 really help us answer the question, what sort of friend is God? And the answer to that question is, God is the sort of friend who comes to hang out with his people, sharing a meal, fellowshipping, around the table with his people. God is not some distant being who stands aloof from his people. And God comes to Abraham's table to do what? To personally reemphasize this amazing outlandish promise of a son who will be born by Sarah's menopausal elderly womb. 
So God is the sort of friend who enjoys close fellowship with his people and who makes outlandish promises to his people and then keeps those promises to the letter. Well, let's go to the second unit of verses in this chapter, verses 16 through 33. Let's refresh our memories about the question that's now being addressed in the second unit. The question now is, what sort of judge is God? Verse 16, Then the men, the three mysterious men, set out from there after they'd finished their meal at Abraham's table, and they looked down toward Sodom. Now, we'll talk about Sodom once we get to verse 20. But for now, just remember this, that Sodom is where Abraham's nephew Lot lives. The last part of verse 16 tells us that Abraham literally walked with God. Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And then we have, friends, a very important soliloquy or self-monologue that God now speaks to himself as he walks towards Sodom. Verse 17, Yahweh says, he's speaking to himself now, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Answer, no. God will not hide from Abraham what God is about to do because friends... Confide in friends. Friends share their heart with friends. In Isaiah 41.8 and in 2 Chronicles 20 verse 7, Abraham is identified as God's friend. And now God will share his heart and share his thoughts with his friend. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now notice this very carefully, friends, as we follow the trajectory of this narrative. God, as he speaks this soliloquy, is on his way to execute a severe judgment on the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's already on that mission of judgment. But here he is in verse 18, recalling the fact, as he speaks to himself, that his ultimate mission is not to judge the nations, but to bless the nations. And Abraham is going to be the central human agent in that mission of blessing. Chris Wright says, and I think this is so important, he says God on his way to act in judgment on a particular evil society stops to remind himself of his ultimate purpose of blessing on all the nations. It's almost as if God cannot do the one judgment without setting it in the context of the other. Redemption. This is our God. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Now, what God does here in in this verse is he summarizes, he encapsulates his own promises to Abraham that were voiced first in Genesis 12, 
And then we saw them formalize the promises in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 with the covenant. God is recalling his own covenant promises. And because God is in covenant relationship with Abraham, God will be transparent with Abraham about what God is about to do because a covenant relationship demands openness and transparency with the covenant partner. God's covenant partners, Abraham and Sarah, had been less than forthcoming with God. They had been less than blameless with God, but God will be forthcoming. He will be blameless with Abraham. God is going to model now what covenant transparency actually looks like. Verse 19, God continues his soliloquy. For I have chosen him, chosen Abraham, or I have elected Abraham, and I've done that for a purpose, says God. Watch this. God says, I have chosen Abraham that purpose. He may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Abraham was to witness to his kids and to everybody else in his house the way of Yahweh. This was a way that was different than the way of the surrounding people groups. This was a way, this way of Yahweh, that was different than the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. The way of Yahweh, as summarized by Eugene Merrill, is simply the whole course of life lived in conformity to covenant obligation. And Abraham and his people would keep the way of the Lord, notice in the text, by doing what? By doing righteousness and justice. Simply put, they would keep the Lord's way by living out the requirements of the covenant. Requirements, friends, that were a direct reflection of God's heart and God's way and God's mind. Living out the righteousness and justice of God would mean that Abraham and company would be promoting life wherever they were, that they would be promoting worship, that they would be encouraging Human flourishing, it meant that they would be the poster children for human well-being by doing righteousness and justice. Now note something as we get set to move forward. Note something that's very crucial here in verse 19, and that's this, that God is the one, listen, God is the one here who raises the issue of justice. God wants his covenant partners to live out justice. Now, that's a very important point for where we're going to go shortly in the passage. So just keep that in your thinking. It's God who raises the issue of justice in verse 19. The last part of verse 19, after that little section about ethics in Abraham's household, the last section gets background now to the mission of God that's going to happen through Abraham. God says so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And what God had promised Abraham was the blessing of the nations through Abraham. So we have to note the links in verse 19, and here I'm helped again very enormously by Chris Wright. The links in verse 19 are 
This is important for us. Election, so Abraham is chosen at the beginning of the verse, followed by ethics, Abraham must lead his household in the way of Yahweh, followed by mission, God will bring about the blessing of the nations through Abraham. Election, which links to ethics, which links to mission, so that the one in the middle, ethics, the ethical quality of life of the people of God, is the vital link between our calling and our mission. As Wright puts it, God's intention to bless the nations is inseparable, inseparable from God's ethical demand on the people he has created to to be the agent of that blessing. Yes, indeed, as called people, you and I are to live and talk and carry ourselves in public and private, in public and private, in the way of the Lord. It's a vital component of our effectiveness missionally. Well, at verse 20, it seems that God's self-talk ends now. His soliloquy ends. And now God talks in the hearing of Abraham. God says, listen to what he says, because the z'akah in Hebrew, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And their sin is very grave. Now we're going to stop right there for a moment. The word in the original Hebrew that's translated outcry here is a very interesting and very colorful word. Listen. It describes the cry that people make when they've suffered some great injustice. This is the cry that comes for a person in physical and or emotional pain from some violation or oppression or injustice. This is the agonized scream of a victim. Outcry. And this outcry that had come into the hearing of God was emanating from Sodom and Gomorrah, coming from the Twin Cities whose sin, in God's estimation, right here in the text, their sin was very kaved, very heavy, very grave. People were crying out. How contemporary is this? People were crying out because of the heavy, grave oppression and the horrific violation and the sordid crimes against them that had been happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. And friends, if we take the whole counsel of God into account, and if we do a study on Sodom and Gomorrah that takes into account the whole Bible, what we find when we do that is that Sodom and Gomorrah ends up being a sort of prototype, listen, that represents humanity in all times at its very worst. For the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah is the prime example. It is exhibit A of human wickedness. Sodom and Gomorrah represent the way of fallen humanity. Now, we don't have time today to to go and visit 
all the places in the Bible where Sodom and Gomorrah come up in the discussion. But suffice it to say that Sodom and Gomorrah acts like a catchphrase for self-destructive human depravity. Sodom and Gomorrah represent what Nahum Sarna has called, listen to what he says, he's called Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, what's happening there, heinous moral and social corruption, moral and social corruption, an arrogant disregard of elementary human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the sufferings of others. Again, in his book, The Mission of God, Chris Wright does some biblical theology on Sodom and Gomorrah, and his conclusions are that in these twin cities, what we had was unbridled idolatry, social evils, bloodshed, corruption and injustice, pride, arrogance, affluence, and callousness to the needy. He says, this was a place filled with oppression, cruelty, violence, perverted sexuality, greedy consumption, and a lack of compassion or care. Wright says, they were overproud, overfed, and underconcerned. And then he adds that this is all a very modern-sounding list of accusations. And now God was coming in judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 21, God says, in Abraham's hearing, he says, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, God being God had absolutely zero need to go down and investigate whether or not the cry coming from these cities was legit. He already knew exactly what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he knew where the hearts of every single person were at. I think the reason God speaks verse 21 is not because God actually needs to go down and see, but rather because God wants two things from Abraham, for Abraham. First, God wants Abraham to understand, listen, that God, our God, is thorough in making his decisions to judge people. No stone is left unturned. This judgment will be no knee-jerk reaction on the part of God. He's a God who does his homework. And second, God speaks, verse 21, in Abraham's hearing, because God is indirectly, I think this is happening here, he's indirectly inviting Abraham to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's calling Abraham to pray here for these wicked cities. Verse 22, so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So now notice it's just Abraham and God. Now remember back at verse 19 where we made the observation that God raised the issue of justice in his speech. Remember that. 
The narrator wanted us readers to see that God raised the issue of justice. God expressed his, his desire that Abraham walk in justice. Well, if Abraham is going to walk in the justice of God, if Abraham is going to live out God's sense of justice, then Abraham needs to see for himself just what the justice of God looks like. God needs to show Abraham just what God's justice looks like. And so we get verse 23 and following, where Abraham is now going to explore God's justice, how God puts his justice into action. Verse 23. Now, friends, I don't know how you approach God. What I want you to notice here is that Abraham skips the niceties. He just gets straight to business here. Listen to this. Then Abraham drew near right to the Lord and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What is Abraham's concern here? His concern is not, listen, not that Sodom and Gomorrah deserve judgment. God's judgment is coming on these cities, and it's not a debating point. It's a foregone conclusion that these cities are going to receive judgment. So Abraham doesn't say here, why judge these people at all, God? He doesn't say that. Rather, Abraham starts out here, notice, already assuming that the judgment is coming. But Abraham's issue is this, that as many truly depraved and wicked operators as there were in Sodom and Gomorrah who deserved the judgment of God, there were a select few righteous in that city, that is, people who had not participated in the behaviors that led to the outcry. People who were joined to Yahweh in faith, perhaps. People who were trusting Yahweh in the midst of a wicked context. Would God now simply sweep away the righteous also in the moment that he poured out his judgment on the wicked? In verse 24, Abraham begins exploring the parameters of God's justice. And to do that, he engages in this countdown now. The final countdown. This is a countdown that will extend from verse 24 down to verse 32. Abraham says, listen to what he says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Verse 25. Listen to Abraham with God. Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham is exploring the justice of God. Lord, you require me to act in justice in my household. It's fair, is it not, for me to see your justice in action in this situation in Sodom and Gomorrah. Model your justice for me, God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And of course, the answer to Abraham's question is this. Of course God will always do what is just. Do you know that? Of course he will. Friend, in your current dilemma, whatever it is, God will do what is just, 100%. In your current heartbreak, God is going to do what is just. In your current confusion, 
you can count on God acting in perfect justice. Verse 26, notice how cool God is. Abraham has just been sort of barking, peeking, verse 25, exasperated, anxious. God replies in verse 26, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Wow. This is incredibly relevant for us, friends. Notice that the presence of righteous people in a city, people who trust God, who live for God, who witness for him, notice how their presence in a city benefits that city. And the benefit is that their presence holds off God's judgment on that city. If God found 50 righteous, he would spare the place for the sake of those 50 people being there. Dale Ralph Davis has a great summary. He says this, listen to this, the presence of God's people benefits the wicked in this age. For the presence of the righteous may hold off or postpone judgment on the wicked. Naturally, he says, it's not likely that the wicked will realize this or even care. They only think your standards are too stringent, your beliefs too narrow, your lifestyle too straight, your ethics too outmoded. But this might, he says, but might this be one reason why God's judgment does not come upon the nations today as swiftly and completely as it might? We wonder. Well, for the sake of time, we can simply summarize verses 27 through 33 at the end of the chapter. Abraham continues to explore the parameters of the justice of God. Abraham says, we know the story, some of us. He says, okay, you'll spare the city for the sake of 50 righteous. Well, what about 45? God says, I'll spare the city for the sake of 45 righteous. Abraham then counts down from 45 to 40 to 30 to 20. And finally to 10, and God answers the same way in every case. If 10 righteous people can be found in Sodom and Gomorrah, God will spare the cities. The conversation ends at verse 32, and at verse 33, Abraham and God go their separate ways. Again, the conversation between Abraham and God serves to answer our question, what sort of judge is God? And the answer is, God is the sort of judge who is willing to spare even an entire wicked city for the sake of ten righteous. As we wrap up now, Genesis 18 has given us answers to our two questions, hasn't it? First, what sort of friend is God? We said God is the sort of friend who enjoys intimate relationship and fellowship with his people and who makes outlandish promises to his people and then keeps those promises to the letter. Second, what sort of judge is God? God is the sort of long-suffering judge who is willing to spare even the wicked for the sake of ten righteous. Several centuries passed after the events of Genesis 18. And in the time of the prophet Isaiah, God made another one of his outlandish promises. In Isaiah 7.14, God promised that a virgin would conceive 
and bear a son whose name would be Emmanuel, God with us. Impossible. But is anything too hard for the Lord? Another bunch of centuries passed after that prophecy in Isaiah, and Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, was born from the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And like God had come that day to Abraham in human flesh, to enjoy a meal and to fellowship with Abraham, like God had come knocking on Abraham's door as Abraham's friend, so Jesus comes knocking at our door to eat with us, Revelation 3.20, to enjoy intimate fellowship with us when we open the door to him. Jesus comes and he calls his disciples friends, John 15.15. He comes saying, listen to the terms of intimacy in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, says Jesus, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And listen, we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus comes as God with us who desires intimate fellowship with us. And listen. Jesus comes in Abraham's lineage. Yes, he does. But Jesus is better than Abraham. Amen? Amen. Where Abraham had interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, an intercession that results ultimately, we'll see next week, in the rescue of Lot and his daughters, Jesus not only intercedes before the Father on behalf of sinners, Romans 8.34, But Jesus runs, listen, he runs right into the heart of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus dies in the place of the wicked, taking God's wrath in place of the wicked. Abraham's intercession may have rescued Lot and his daughters. But the intercession of Jesus on his cross saves countless hosts of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue saves them from the wrath of God. Jesus is better than Abraham. Now, friends, in the New Testament, and then I'm done, in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, verse 6, God says, very importantly, he says that when he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, we'll see that next week, Genesis 19, when he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, that horrific event, says Peter, was to serve as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. As Tom Schreiner puts it, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is not merely a historical curiosity, but functions as a type of of what God will do in the future. Simply put, There is a fiery judgment yet to come on human wickedness. And you do not want to experience that moment as an unforgiven person who is unwashed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20, I implore you on behalf of Christ, Be reconciled to God.
while God as merciful judge allows you this time of grace before his coming judgment, be reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Be reconciled by trusting in Jesus Christ as the one who saves you from the coming judgment because he's already taken the judgment on the cross. Receive him today as Lord and as Master and Savior and friend. Let's pray together. Father, we are challenged in many ways by Genesis 18. I am challenged to intercede on behalf of Montreal, the place where we live and work and move and have our being. There are countless hosts in this city who are rejecting you, who don't know you, who are living apart from the new covenant. Lord, I pray for this city, for all of those individuals and people, that you would do a mighty work, continue to do a work that you've already started. We see signs of it around this city, Lord. But I pray that there would be a harvest in this city, a harvest of righteousness, that people would come to know you, that we would hear reports and see it happen and be part of, of it happening, Lord, in a small way. We pray and intercede on behalf of our city. And Lord God, now as we move to the table, I pray your presence be with us, that you would come and dine with us and enjoy our company as we enjoy yours, that we uh, undertake this feast that you have commanded. In Jesus' name, amen.